Let us not sing, a mighty fortress is our God, again until we change that last phrase on the first verse. Because it is not true. And I do not want you to believe it, nor catechize your children with it. When speaking about Satan, and it says, on earth is not his equal. Because since the resurrection of Christ and the pouring out on the Spirit, greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. And Christ is triumphant and He is reigning and His kingdom is growing at the expense of, not alongside of, the kingdom of Satan. So let us change that somehow. I had some good uh, uh, opportunities before and I've lost them all, but we keep forgetting There is something greater than Him upon the earth. And He is working in you to demonstrate that great power. As we consider our text this morning, I'm deviating out of the book of Matthew, turning now to Revelation chapter 3, as one of the letters that Christ gave to one of the seven churches there in Revelation. Let's hear the Word of God from the last church addressed, Laodicea, chapter 3 of Revelation, beginning at verse 14, hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. And white garments that you may be clothed. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. And as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, Father, we do ask that You would send Your Spirit upon us now to open up our ears and open our eyes that we can see and with our hearts to understand what the Spirit would say to us this day. We thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ and His great triumph on the cross. The one now that You have given all power in heaven and on earth and have empowered Your church as Your body and Your physical embodiment here upon this earth where Christ is our head and now we are reigning with Him as priests and kings. May we know our place and take heed to our responsibility and join with our Savior in convicting this world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment in the power of the Holy Spirit, which raised Christ up from the dead, now has been given to us. And so energize us this day that we would be white hot for our great King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to only use a few illustrations, but then carry some things forward from my talk on Dietrich Bonhoeffer last night. He was a man who had great influence with his mom, training him up in some of the teachings and catechism of Count Zinzendorf, teaching him the Bible and that the Bible was the Word of God and teaching it from a devotional standpoint and not merely an academic standpoint. However, Dietrich was not one that went to church 
for most of his, well, for all of his uh, childhood lives, life, but uh, it was not until he came back from America that he then changed drastically. But not only did he become uh, a, a full-out uh, member of the church, he was its greatest ally and its greatest defender, and he fought for the church in Germany. He was fighting for the gospel in the church in Germany and fighting for them to do something according to the kingdom of God. He was responsible for leading a group of more serious-minded and faithful Christians out of the Lutheran Christian church at the time which had been Nazified and was very zealous for recovering the gospel in its clarity and its responsibility. But in his day, in his country, the church believed a cheap grace that cost little to nothing. And they were enamored with the culture in which they lived. And they valued their culture more than they valued the kingdom of God. And the result was horrifying. And today, the American church has had a culture and a teaching from pulpits of cheap grace that costs little to nothing, coupled with a worldly culture that we have valued more than we value the kingdom of God. And the results are horrifying. There are a lot of similarities between the two. And it behooves us to consider what happened 90 years ago in order to avoid a disaster in the church here today. This morning I'm going to be preaching from Revelation chapter 3 on the lukewarm church. Notice first of all, in our text this morning where Christ addresses the church. He's writing a letter and who He's writing it to is the church at Laodicea. One of the important facts that we should notice as He's writing each of these seven churches in Asia Minor is that all of them are addressed to the church in a city. And the culture and the influences of each one of those cities has significant ramifications for the church which dwells in the middle of her. As we hear of the backgrounds and the cultural facts regarding the cities, we need to understand how that in our own culture influences God's church today, oftentimes in negative ways, unless we take heed to the calling with which He has called us. Laodicea was founded in 250 B.C. by Antichos of Syria and was named after his wife Laodice. During the Roman Empire, it became one of the wealthiest cities in the world. There are three particular notable things that I would like to draw out about its wealth because it's relevant even to the text here. The first one, it was a great banking and financial center of the empire. So rich and independent was she that she was devastated by an earthquake in AD 61 and the citizens of Laodicea refused any help from the Roman government out of their own resources in order to build the city back. Tacitus writes of his annals, one of the most famous cities in Asia, Laodicea, was in that same year overthrown by an earthquake and without any relief from us, recovered itself by its own resources. So wealthy and independent with this city, it did not see any need for any help from its sovereign. The second thing that was true about this city is it was a great center of a clothing manufacturer. Sheep that grazed there were very famous for their soft and violet, violet black glossy wool. And from this wool, there was a mass produ production of garments that were made and they were known for this. And a third thing about this city is it was known for its medical center. 
It had a considerable medical center there in Laodicea whose doctors were famous that some were even engraved on the coinage. But the medical school there was famous throughout the world for an ointment that was used for eyes and ears like a salve that would help bring healing. Now that's the church in context to whom Christ is addressing. But we see from whom the letter is being written. In verse 14, the end of the verse says, These things says... The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. These three appellatives are describing the one who is writing this letter. It's a threefold title, and the first of which is the Amen. Truly, the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. When you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And when the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He's the one with the two-edged sword coming out of His mouth. The, he is the truth. The word amen here is often put at the end of a solemn statement to guarantee its truth. Or sometimes it's put at the beginning of a statement to draw attention to the truth that will follow. The second appellative or title that is coupled with that, Amen, is the faithful and true witness. According to Trench, a witness must satisfy three essentials. Number one, he must have seen it with his own eyes of which he tells. Number two, he must be honest so that his testimony testifies with accuracy. And number three, he must have the ability to tell what he has to say. And Jesus fits all three of those. He tells of God because He came from Him. We can rely upon His words because He is the Amen. He is the truth of God. And number three, He is able to tell His message. And then the third title here is the beginning of the creation of God. That does not mean that He is the beginning part of what, that which was created. He is not the first created being. But that He began the process of creation and He is at its preeminent aspect. The beginning here is Arche. In the early Christian writings, we read that Satan is the Arche of death. Death takes its origin in Him. Christ is the arche, meaning that all of creation finds its beginning, its origin in Him. And He is the head of it all. And among all of creation, He has the preeminence. So God reveals Himself in a world, or in our world, from a completely different kind of world. From a different world, if you will. But He breaks through into our world and He brings His glorious Amen and the faithful and true witness and His origin of it all right into our world. And with it, He provides a correct worldview through which all of life must be viewed, interpreted, and lived according to His worldview and not that in which our culture informs. The second thing we see in this letter written to the church of Laodicea by the one who is called the Amen, the faithful true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, he says in verses 15 through 17, he says in verse 15, Something about the state of the church to whom he's writing. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Oh, I wish that you were either cold or hot. The state of the church is neither cold nor hot. 
word cold is a word that means very cold. Like a cold north wind which makes the ice congeal upon the waters. That kind of cold. Colder than some of you experienced in that dunking tank holding your breath yesterday. <laughs> it's cold. The word hot means very hot. It means to bring it to the boiling point. The hot, hot white liquid metal. Molten lava. That kind of hot. Very hot. But the word lukewarm is the idea of tepid. It, it's, it has a nauseating effect. Now today we have things called hot cappuccinos. If you know anything about me, and if you've ever been to a, 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 a coffee shop where I order a cappuccino, I order it not extra hot, I order it as hot as the barista will make it. Now there's a secret there for you. I learned that the hard way because I would go to some of these places and they said, well, the barista will only make it 180 degrees because beyond that it begins to destroy the, the sweetness of the cream. I don't care about the sweetness of the cream. I want it as hot as he will make it. And so I learned to to begin asking, I want a, a, a cappuccino as hot as the barista will make it. Because another time I went there, uh, and I asked that, well, because I, I told him to make it hot, like boiling hot. And the other answer I got back is, well, the barista has a liability to burn himself, and so he will only make it 180 degrees. Finally, I hit upon one that was kind of like the sweet zone. I said, Make it as hot as the barista feels comfortable. And he made it hot. So I've learned how to tweak my answer because I want my cappuccino hot in 10 minutes and not just when he hands it across the counter. And I like my coffee hot. I don't like it cold. I don't like it refrigerated. I don't like it tepid. Now, on the, on the flip side of that, I do like a, a frappuccino, which is the same thing, but made with ice and frozen. And I do like that. But the thing I do not like, I do not like lukewarm coffee. I do not like uh, room temperature coffee, as though it's been uh, set out overnight and it just comes to the room temperature and there it is. And, uh, and that's the idea. That's the illustration. So we see the displeasure of Christ in verse 16. So then, because you are lukewarm, you're neither cold nor you're hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. The cold and hot metaphor here is regarding their zeal, their enthusiasm, their affections for the kingdom where they have placed their values in life. For someone to be cold, that is someone without Christ and no spiritual religion of Christianity in their heart. I would that you would be that, he says. Someone who is hot has a burning zeal and a devotion for Christ whose value is seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness first above all other values. But this tepidness is one who endorses religion, Christianity, tipping his hat to Christ, acknowledging Jesus, has no zeal, no enthusiasm. Like a cup of coffee left on the counter overnight, just sitting there until the next morning. It's extreme opposite of what Christ would desire. There's a truth that a child who knows his father loves him dearly will reciprocate that love back in a desire to please the Father. 
Our children who know that they are loved, love to please their parents. And if we're truly God's children, we will want to know what pleases Him, and then we will love what He loves, and hate what He hates, and do what He wants us to do in order to please Him from a a heart of love. But lukewarmness is something he tells us here greatly displeases him. They had little zeal for Christ. In our Webster Dictionary, if you look that up, zeal or zealousness, it has this ardent, devoted to a purpose. It, It has words like it's fervent, it's enthusiastic, intensely enthusiastic as a working for a cause for something, like a passion. And all that is true, but even beyond it, because we know from the biblical zeal, it even is more than that. It's all of that, and it's more. And we've recently seen as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, He goes to the temple, and He drives out the money changers with a whip, and His zeal was violently expressed And it says, zeal for my house has eaten him up. A church with little zeal is a lukewarm church. It's complacent. It's comfortable. And it's just has no enthusiasm or passion. What is true for the church can also be true for you as an individual. In a church that's zealous and passionate and white hot for God is one who is made up of individuals who are that. Jesus illuminates their problem in verse 17. Because you say, in verse 17 he says, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and naked. Now the problem with lukewarmness was twofold as he points it out to the church at Laodicea. First of all, their first problem here is they had confidence in earthly things. Their particular confidence here was of wealth. Whatever their confidence is, it was of an earthly thing. It was not of God. They thought themselves too well, too healthy, too provided for. See, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the problem with the church is that it sees itself as all too healthy. Confidence in their well-being. Notice that their own sense of wealth and worth here. They were rich. I don't need anything, was the idea. You see, they embraced exactly the culture of the city in which they lived. They were not the salt in that culture. They were not the light of that culture, showing the counterculture. They had become the culture. And like the culture around them, they enjoyed the wealth, they enjoyed the pleasures and the ease of life that money could afford them. Their lifestyle was comfortable. So comfortable, in fact, they had little zeal. That's why Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The issue is not how much money one has or does not have. The issue is how does it affect him? Money and pleasure for what money can buy becomes a value in life. But where do you place this value in your lineup? That's the key. 
The culture around us has such an influence upon us if we let it. If we're not deliberate. If we're not fighting it and opposing it openly. And the fact that the culture around us has an impact and an influence upon us. This fact demands our awareness. It must be kept in check. The question is, is that more important than the kingdom of God to you? This is exactly the problem that the German church had 90 years ago. Their country and the pride of their country was a higher value than God's kingdom. German nationalism became the influencing factor at the expense of the gospel and the expense of the kingdom of God. In America, like the Laodicean church, we have a large influencing factor, and that is the wealth and the love of money. And we need to be aware so that does not cool down our zeal, puts us in a place of complacency and comfort that we want to protect that value at the expense of God and His work here. And I'm afraid it already has in so many ways. The difference between the American church and the Laodicean church the Laodicean church sensed that they were rich and wealthy, and they said, I have no need of anything. I, I need nothing. The Church of America, she's rich and wealthy, but says, I need more. I don't have enough. And we are so busy with gaining more wealth and accumulating more things with taking more of our time Time that could be used for kingdom work is now diverted to gaining more. Because when we're talking about doing kingdom work, where are we going to find the time? We're too busy. When are we going to have time to disciple? We're too busy. When are we going to have time to raise up and train up elders? We're too busy. We're busy getting more wealth. Protecting our lifestyle. Because the culture around us says that's what we need to do. And we've owned it. We've allowed it to catechize us. And we now protect it. There's comfort in worldly things. And the worldly way of thinking is detrimental. It displeases the Lord. Not only is confidence in the worldly things a false confidence, but it, it brings a second problem in that it deceives us. When we give way to it, it then lies to us and we believe the lie. I'm, we, I don't need anything, the church says. They saw themselves too healthy. One of the greatest mistakes we can make is not seeing ourselves the way God sees us. God says, you're wretched. You are poor. You are blind. And you're naked. That's who you are. And you don't see it. God was seeing the church exactly the opposite of the way they saw themselves. How did they come to such a different opinion than God? Because they were influenced and led astray by a wrong worldview. The worldview is that that which you interpret and you see how things are. 
And there's two worldviews that we have. There's the way that God sees things, and this is the way He was seeing the Laodicean church. And there's the way that the eyes of the world sees things, and the Laodicean church was seeing things in the way of the world. They were rich. They didn't have a need of anything. What we see is the Laodiceans had bought off on the worldview in which the way that the world and the culture around them had catechized them to judge themselves. It was completely diametrically opposed to the way that God sees them and what was really true. That's why he says, I am true. I'm a faithful witness. These two worldviews, the the way that the world will train and catechize us through their entertainment and their music and their ways and their, their rituals, their liturgies, is diametrically opposed to the way of God and His own culture living in the world. We are a unique and special culture while in the world. That's what saltiness is. That's what the light is. That's why we see in Ephesians 5, when we are to live according to the calling that God has called us, why between uh, chapter 4, verse 17, and chapter 5, verse 17, we have all of those adverse, contrary buts. The world is like this, but you are. The world is like this, but you are. But, but, but. So contrary to the way of the world, the thinking of the world, the way that the world talks, the way that the world lives, the values of the world. See, there's no neutral ground between the worldview of the world and the gods that they serve and God's worldview and the only God that truly is. There's no neutral ground. Jesus said back on the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. One will give way. You cannot believe that the Bible is the Word of God and the authority of the church in its tradition. One will give way. You cannot believe the Torah as a Jew and the oral tradition as equal and simultaneous authorities. One will give way. It always happens. You can only serve one true master. There is no neutrality. You can't have it both ways. So you need to count the cost and determine this day whom you will serve. What has happened is that the church has allowed this hostile worldview of Satan to influence it to such an extent that it squelches the zeal and makes them complacent. A zeal in which we need to be violent in our opposition to the world's view. We are not to be relevant to the world. I am sick and sore of hearing churches wants to be relevant to the world. We are to be absolutely opposed and irrelevant to them. That's what holiness is. It is separate, set apart. And when we have the beauty of Christ exuding through us, it will draw men to us. We don't need to take the things of the world and just baptize them. We don't need to embrace the the ideologies of the world in order to preserve our chief value. That is not God. See, they didn't see their real poverty and their blindness and their nakedness. They were influenced with the false confidence that all was well to the extent they were deceived and believing a lie. It's exactly what happened to the Germans in the 1930s with the Nazification of the German church, the Reichskirk. It's exactly how many American Christians today are being led by worldly idolatry, antithetical to the things of God and His values that He takes delight in. 
In Nazi Germany, the Christians, because of theology and the doctrines that had been preached from their pulpit, because of bad theology, German Christians could separate and divorce their spiritual lives from their German nationalism so that there was no tension between the two. And in America, Christians have also been able to divorce their spiritual lives from their American culture and the love of money to the extent that there is no tension between the two. There's no part of a Christian's life that can be divorced from Christ. He is either Lord of all or He is not Lord at all. See? Everything a Christian does in every sphere of life should be Christ-centered and Christ-immersed and God-glorifying and everything should be deliberate to that end. So therefore, whether therefore you eat or you drink or whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. Notice His remedy now. Notice Christ's remedy. He shows them their state. He shows them the truth. He's taught them. He's rebuked them. He's correcting them, and He's training them up in righteousness with the Word of God. In verse 18, here's His counsel. I counsel you. Here's the correction. I counsel you to buy from Me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may, be, may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. You see the Lord's remedy? It's, it echoes back to Isaiah 55 1. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Grace in Christ. Notice how the threefold remedy corresponds to their threefold worldview. Remember how I said that there were three particular aspects in Laodicea that they had embraced and we can see why it crept into the church because they were wealthy and so Christ now first of all addresses gold. Now come and buy gold refined in the fire. This is His counsel to the church. Why? Why would we? That you may be rich because you're not. Come buy Jesus' gold, He says. Come and get it for free, He says. See, Christ's gold is refined in the fire. This is a spiritual wealth. This is where we read from, from 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. In verse 6 it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom... Having not seen, you love, though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. That's what Jesus is offering. That's the kind of gold He says come and get. Material wealth cannot buy happiness. It cannot buy um, health to better bodies. It cannot improve our minds. It cannot bring comfort and sorrow. It cannot offer fellowship and loneliness. But God's gold can do that. Faith tried in the fiery trials, in the crucible of experience, there is nothing that it cannot face. And the one who has that is truly rich indeed. The second thing He offers them which corresponds to the wealth of the garments that they made in the culture, but Jesus is now going to contrast that because he says they're really naked and come and get these white garments. I've got white garments for you. They didn't see their nakedness. In the ancient world, to be stripped naked meant the worst humiliation. This was thus with 
Hanum and the way he treated David's servants. The threat of Egypt was that Assyria would lead her people naked and barefoot, according to Isaiah 20. It was Ezekiel's threat to Israel that her enemies would strip her naked of her clothes. Our Savior was stripped of His clothes at Golgotha to utterly humiliate Him. On the other hand, giving someone clothing of fine raiment was one of great honor. Pharaoh honored Joseph by giving him clothing and vestures of fine linen. Daniel was clothed in purple by Belshazzar. Mordecai was clothed in the king's royal garments and paraded around the city for them to honor him. When the prodigal son returns home, he was honored with his father's best robe. And here Jesus says, come and get my white robe. The white garments, figuratively, are are the pure and the, the righteous robe of Christ's righteousness where the shame of nakedness and the dirty soil of iniquity that is exposed to God is then covered in Christ's righteousness. He has taken us and clothed us in clean white garments and has covered our nakedness and shame. The third thing that corresponds to the medical wealth that they had and the ointment that they were famous for Jesus says, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see because you are really blind. That's the truth. See, it's not the system of the world of Laodicea in which the church was living, of which she had infiltrated and allowed the culture to infiltrate her and caused the salt to lose its saltiness. It wasn't the world system of the wealth of Laodicea, the garments of Laodicea, and the eye ointments of Laodicea, but it is the wealth of Christ and His garment and His eye salve. It's not the world, but Christ. And if you don't see the the poverty in your life, you're not going to receive the gold that He has for you. See, the problem is they could not see their problem. Their problem is they could not see their problem. Notice that the Lord addresses all three of these apparent strengths that the culture around them offered with God's true answer and true strength. And in every case, God contrasts the culture around them, the culture that promised them things that the culture could not deliver, but by God's promises of true wealth and true clothing and true healing, these things will deliver. And then notice in verses 19 and 20, His loving mercies. He says in verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be, what's the next word? Zealous and repent. Be on fire and repent. White hot and repent. The Lord's chastening and rebukes are His love for His people because He doesn't want them to remain displeasing to Him. Be zealous and repent. Repent compels a man to see the error of his ways and turn from it. Nathan opened the eyes of David. The rebuke of God is not punishment, it's illumination. It's a mercy, it's a grace. In verse 20 says, the king is standing at the door knocking. This is King Jesus at the door knocking. At the church's door. This is not an evangelistic call to unbelievers in the world to come to Jesus if they would just open the door of their hearts. That's not what he's saying here. He's talking to the church. Calling the church to repent and open the door. So that Jesus can dine with us. To show us His gold, His garments, and His eyes have. 
And we have this unspeakable word, unbelievable reward for those who have ears to hear and will do. In verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. And notice how he puts this. As I also overcame and sit on the throne with my father. Jesus is not asking you to do anything that he himself has not already accomplished. We will reign with him. God wants white-hot Christians, lava-hot, boiling Christians in zealous love and devotion and service to Him. And if you're not that, then the Scriptures say, repent and be zealous. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Christ wants all of you, not part of you. He wants all of you. He wants you to give Him all of you. That means give Him your house. Give Him your children. Give Him your spouse. Give Him your heart. Give Him your soul. Give Him all of your wealth and all of your health and all of your ointments and all of your clothing, all of your affections, all of the things that you value, give it to Jesus in totality. It's all under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. As God in Christ has a desire for better things for you. He desires for you to value Him and His kingdom above all of these things. He says, if you don't even love your spouse and your children and your mother and father more than me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Count the cost. It costs something to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Oh, it costs something. It cost the life of our Savior upon the cross. It cost His blood. It cost His humiliation. It cost sufferings. It cost Him to leave glory and condescend below angels to come here in our sorry lot. It cost God fervency and love for us and the pain of suffering of the Father forsaking His own Son and the Son upon the cross crying out, why do you forsake me? That's what it cost our God for you. And we've turned it into cheap grace. We've peddled the Gospel with just a mental assent. Just believe Jesus and go about your work. Ask Him into your heart and just live however you want. It costs our dear Lord His life and it demands all of ours. You have been bought with a price. You're not your own. It's all or nothing. Is the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness? There is no middle ground. Christ hates lukewarmness. And if that doesn't get remedied, He will come and He will snuff out the light of the church. And it will be no more. Never be satisfied with being an average, mediocre Christian. There simply isn't such a state that can last in that condition. Either get hot for Christ, or He comes and snuffs us out. So the question is, which world are you living in? What world's values do you cherish the most? 
You know, you protect things that you value. You take care of them. You nurture them. You're careful with them because you value them. Christ says if you seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, all the other things are going to be taken care of. You love me more than your spouse, and I'm going to show you a love for your spouse, the likes of which you have never known. That's how Jesus does it. And the rich young ruler went away sad that day because he had many possessions when Christ was offering him the entire world. The meek will inherit the earth. He who has ears, let him hear what Christ says to the church. Our gracious Father, we pray that you would stir us up and energize us with the Spirit of God which raised up Christ from the dead. The very power has now been given to us. May we burn in our passion for God to the extent that our zeal is so stirred up that we take heaven by violent storm. And that we oppose the very things of this world that oppose you. That as the Spirit has been given to rebuke the world of sin and of righteousness and of justice, may we be the instruments through which the Spirit of God works May we not be ashamed of the gospel and all of the life that it entails. And so work in each one of us a holy life as you are holy. Laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven where cannot be destroyed. And we pray you would work in each of our individual hearts as well as this church body as a whole. That we can see the kingdom ground advance into the enemy territory and gain territory for Jesus in every part of life, in every part of our culture. Bring it all under the lordship of Jesus Christ so that the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters do the sea. Use us, we pray. Use us in a mighty way. In Jesus' name, amen.